This episode of the podcast is brought to you by WeBoost. WeBoost is a technology company which makes the world's best cell phone boosters. I've got one in my truck, and it's greatly improved my connectivity in the backcountry, especially on public lands during my volunteer trail maintenance endeavors for the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. In addition, Craig has a WeBoost booster up at the off-grid ranch in Gunnison, Colorado, and it's dramatically increased his cell phone service, going from one bar of 1G connectivity to three bars of LTE service. Without the boosters from WeBoost, recording and uploading this podcast would not be possible. So if you plan to spend time in remote areas of the country and need reliable cell phone and data connectivity, you owe it to yourself to check out what WeBoost has to offer. To view their line of cell phone boosters, click on the link in the podcast notes below. Hey, what's up, everyone? Hope you all are having a great start to your week. Sorry for the absence with the podcast. Both Craig and I have been super busy with uh, just doing stuff after the first of the year getting started. And I got back on the road. I'm actually in Arizona at the moment. And Craig has been dealing with crazy cold temperatures at the ranch. The other day I saw that he posted up that it was the wind chill was negative 51 Fahrenheit. So definitely cold weather out there. And he's doing everything on the snowmobile going to and from town so it's pretty gnarly but anyway just wanted to go ahead and get this new episode of the podcast posted it's actually not new it's we did this on january 9th and so this is a little bit of my embarrassment of being so late and getting this up this is 20 days overdue so i apologize for that i'll definitely be more on top of it moving forward and as we settle into the new year here so um, the the episode that we have here for you today, it talks about truck camping in the New England area. Craig has some experience up there in New York, Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut. I can't remember if I went to Vermont or not, but maybe he did. And anyway, uh, we had a an individual from the audience ask about this. And so Craig goes in and talks about his experience with truck camping in that, those areas and also on the East Coast and kind of talks about how it's different than doing it in the western part of the country. So it's good information for those of us who plan to go truck camp on the East Coast but have never been. So without further ado, episode 35. I'm getting ready to get back on the road, so I'm pretty stoked for that. But I, I'm noticing the temperatures are pretty cold in Colorado. So thinking I probably will not go back with the tents. I'm going to just try to truck camp it and I'm, I'm doing some things to make the truck camper a little bit, a little bit warmer. And there's a, a YouTube video that I found online on how to convert my three candle, uh, three candle candle lantern that I use from Yuko, the UCO company to how I can convert it to a, a gas lantern, which would be pretty interesting. So it's like a liquid fuel canisters you can put inside of there and it creates more heat they're saying that it puts out 8,000 btus which would be pretty amazing and that little lantern so if i can do that and then truck camp i can be a little bit more mobile and not have to worry about carrying around so much gear which would be nice but you've been dealing with a lot of cold temps there in gunnison haven't you yeah it's it's starting to come back up in temperature and when i say come back up in temperature it's it's probably hitting 30 degrees during the day, and, but then getting back down to zero, you know, maybe negative two at night. But there was a time period there. There was a stretch, like I want to say Christmas through New Year's where the nighttime temps up here, they were probably getting nighttime negative 10, negative 15, Gunnison City. Uh, the town, you know, they, they're actually colder than where we are, even though they're lower elevation. I think that they were, they were getting to like negative 27 at night. So yeah, definitely frigid, but it's, it's coming back up in temps, relatively speaking, but 
all all of that's to be expected, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I I think the reason why it's colder down there is I experienced that when I was winter camping for the first three years in in Chaffee County, and the lower lying areas always have colder temps because that cold air is heavier and it just settles in the valley at night. And so a, a hack that I would do is I would get up about a thousand feet in elevation above the valley floor, and it was shocking. I, I would get up in the morning right when the sun was coming up because you know the sun's not coming up till like seven thirty in the winter time. But I get up and I drive into town you know, every once in a while to grab coffee or a breakfast burrito. And I would leave camp and it'd be like, you know, seven, eight degrees. I'd go into town and be like negative four. Just that thousand feet in elevation difference. Yep. That's pretty much, I, I think it's probably about 1,200 feet difference between where I am and, and you know, Gunnison. But yeah, I mean, even even yesterday, I'm trying to think. Um, I think I was dealing with maybe temps in the 20s up here um, as I was heading down there, and then when I got down there, it was like four degrees. So yeah, 15, oh. 15, 20 degree temp difference. So you know, physics physics at play right there. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Do you, do you notice a difference when you're on the snowmobile, like when you leave, and then when you get it down to where your truck is? Is it is that is that where you notice the difference, or do you notice the difference when you get into actual town? No, I think I, I I don't know this for certain, but I mean, physically, I don't notice the temperature difference between where I am, you know, where the monastery is, and where the I'm, I'm starting to call it the parking sled, um, <laughs> you know, rather awesome. than the, the park and ride. But um, I I oh, think that those are similar. Those are we're we're at similar elevation, but when you know when you get down into town is when i i really notice the difference yeah so so the the road going there like i saw your i saw your photos that you put online the other day i think it was yesterday and it looked like where you were taking pictures it looked like there were tire tracks there is that kind of like where you link up when you took those pictures or are people actually still driving that road no i i think i think what you're seeing on that because there's 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 no one driving um that section that i took pictures so what okay. what you're actually seeing is, you know, you you've got it, it could be multiple tracks from multiple snowmobiles, but then okay. if you if you think about you know the what it looks like with a, a snowmobile track, you've got you know the the rear oh, chain or whatever that thing is. You, you've got that in the center, but then you've got the 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 sleds on on the side so it can actually look like a, a vehicle as opposed to a, a snowmobile but anyway yeah no one no one's driving around back there there, there were the people living back in there because i mean i didn't know if people were going to be there for the winter like the, the sparse neighbors that are around you know within the vicinity are other people doing snowmobiles up and down or are you guys the only ones no we're we're the only ones back as far as we are that are doing year round um <laughs> You're like those crazy fuckers <laughs> yeah no that's uh we're 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 that crew right now and i'm i'm okay with that that's pretty cool man yeah it's it's definitely a good time it was i i yeah it, the the day that we switched over, um, that we actually dropped off the vehicles for the final time, it was, it was kind of funny, or I, I don't know what you want to describe it, but I had just finished up a couple days of, um, you know, doing that driving gig that I got going on. And I, I was tired. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. The, 
the uh, snow was coming down and the wind was picking up when I got home. And I didn't really experience that much of a difference in the driving conditions coming back up here. Uh-huh. But I, I went ahead and I took a nap and then the roommate, you know, woke me up probably around six o'clock in the evening. And he's like, dude, like the winds are really, really picking up and they're supposed to continue to pick up. The snow is continuing to come down. I'm starting to really worry about the drifting. And I was all like lazy, just like, I don't want to deal with anything. <laughs> so he was like, well, you know, why don't, why don't you think about it for the next hour? But he's like, I'm really concerned about getting, getting socked in here. And so, you know, I grabbed my phone, I started messing around on Facebook and whatnot. And then that little voice in the back of my head is like, dude, don't be stupid. Like, remember where you are, like this stuff can change, you know, in the matter of hours. So we jumped on the sled or actually what we did was we, we each got in our cars and we went the long way around and parked and then at the parking sled. And then we had a um, snowmobile there. And the really messed up thing was one of the control arms had broken. And this is, we're probably at nine o'clock at night at this point. And so we had to weld back together (laughs) the, the snowmobile control arm and it's frigid temperatures. The wind's blowing. We're trying to, you know, use the welder to, or he's trying to use the welder. I'm just, you know, standing there with my light to, to give him direction. But anyway, we got it all squared away. We got the, the thing, the control arm welded back together. We snowmobiled back to the monastery. And anyway, we probably got back around 10 o'clock at night, but it was, I, I resisted doing it, but it was it was it was the right decision, you know, the the right thing to to take take care of business when when business needed to be taken care of. Yeah, well, you know, I think um, I mean, with the, with how cold it is there, it's definitely one of those precarious situations to where you you could get in a life threatening situation pretty quick if things went south. Like, say that both the sleds dumped over and somebody got hurt real bad. I mean, that's that's pretty gnarly. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool that you're toughing it out and experiencing that. Cause that's something that a lot of people don't ever get to experience in a lifetime. And, and that's true. I, in my opinion, that's like true Arctic survival. And also it, it just, it's, that's a crazy situation. I I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, no, it, it is a dangerous situation. And we, um, we carried uh, snowshoes with us, um, you know, uh-huh. just in case anything, anything bad happened. It, it didn't, but, you know, like we were just talking before, like no one, no one's back here right now. You know, most of the, yeah. most of the locations, uh, the houses and the properties back here are seasonal inhabitants and, and winter is not when they're living back here. So no, and you don't have any cell service either. Um, I gotta, yeah. I gotta, I gotta install a WeBoost system on this snowmobile, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to up my safety game. But, um, yeah, it's, it's no joke, definitely no joke, but it's, man, there's nothing better last night coming back. You know, the phase of the moon right now is that you get a crescent moon really early in the evening, but then it goes away. And that just leads to like crazy stars at night. And so coming back from, um, from the parking sled to the, the monastery, it was just gorgeous, stars everywhere and i'm you know going through the woods with the headlight on the uh the snowmobile just 
it's just kind of one of those situations where you're like, is, is this real? You know, you're, you're cruising around and it's just absolutely gorgeous and sunny, uh, stunning. And That's cool. uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Well, cool. Well, I'll, I'll keep you informed with when I'm, I'll be heading through there. I'm going to stop through in Chafee County and say what's up to Rick and Katie and then say what's up to a few other friends there and then keep trucking. But I, like I said, I, unless I change my mind about the, the stove and the, the big tent, I may just go without that and just go more mobile. Cause I, my goal is, is, is that I just want to have it to where I have the least amount of gear that I'm carrying. So I can just be as flexible as possible with just getting up and, and cranking. I, I prefer that way. I mean, I, I, every once in a while I enjoy setting up camp, but I mean, to be honest with you, I, I just, I like being on the move, you know, I like going from one place to another. So I, uh, I support you in that thought. Well, let's go over to this um, email that we got from Kenny Arbuckle out of Syracuse, New York. He was inquiring about truck camping in the Northeast area of the country and on the East coast. And he wants to plan on, on trying out this lifestyle when the time's right for him. And his, his questions are, you know, about what's it like in the Adirondack? Is that right? Adirondack yeah. Mountain? The, the Adirondacks mountain, the Adirondacks is, is how it's generally referred to. Yeah. So that, that he was, he was wondering about that because he has experience hiking and camping up in that area, but he was wondering about if we could have a conversation regarding overlanding and backcountry camping in the Northeast region the pros and cons in regards to the North Northeast versus other regions of the country. And then some other factors too, like the weather bug situation, uh, the availability of federal and state land to camp for free. And so he, he just said, he'd love to hear our thoughts on that. Um, and, and so I, I know you've got some experience, quite a bit of experience going up the Northeast area. And you've also spent time in like Vermont and did you go up to Maine as well? Yeah, I've done that. That that area is where I first started camping, you know, in like when I was a wee little lad um, way back in the day. So I'm very so Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, as well as Massachusetts and upstate New York. Um, I've done a lot of camping and, and outdoor action up there as as well as, you know, further on down the Appalachians, you know, into Virginia, Pennsylvania, even and, you know, I've even I've even gotten some action in down in Florida. Well, and this has all been like well, while you're truck camping and stuff like that. Yep, yep, absolutely. So what? So I, I've got some questions about that because I I'd love to go out to the East Coast. I got some friends out there, and also in the Northeast region, I'd I'd like to go out there and experience it. But but I'm so accustomed to Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and those areas where you could just you know point in any direction and you got public land. And so I think that with going to the East Coast, I would probably need to be a little bit more diligent about where I'm going to go, what I can expect when I get there, and how I would go about just finding, I guess, inf- information on, on where to go. So what what did you do to to research areas before you showed up? Because I don't think it's like Colorado to where you can just arrive and just figure it out. Yeah, you, you're exactly right that you need to do homework before you go just because the the lands are managed differently and they're the public lands are substantially less than out west. So typically what I do when I I'm going to a new area whether it's upstate New York, the Adirondacks, um, the Green Mountains of Vermont, the White Mountains of 
New Hampshire, and then just generally. I I do research on the internet or I use maps that show me clearly where the the boundaries are of national forest um, okay. or state parks. And so I'll 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 use an example first with uh, New Hampshire. So I, I love the White Mountains and it's the White Mountains are a national forest and they're you know New Hampshire is a kind of a north south perpendicular kind of state and the the uh, White Mountain National Forest is in the middle of the state um, it's in the upper half of the state and so what I do is I I either go online and look at the national forest boundaries and I start to look at the individual mountain roads and I scout out areas that I think are going to be less inhabited because given it's an older area of the country, the national forests were actually defined after people were already living there. So if you compare that to the mountain West, a lot of the public lands were set in place before a lot of the population got out here. And so, you know, because of the rules of, of public lands, it's very difficult for anybody to actually build a house or have a residence on public lands. And that's in the West, but in the East, people were already living there. And so when you're scouting out these areas in looking on either printed maps or internet maps, you you need to kind of use your judgment looking at, okay, how close is this to a town and what elevation is it at? And so what I do is I, I scout out a few different mountain roads, a few different forest roads that look like there's not going to be a lot of people living there. And that's my starting place. And after I scout out, you know, doing homework, those mountain roads, those forest roads, I get up there. It's just a matter of, of old school recon where you start driving up and down these roads that you've, you've figured out, you know, that you've scouted out on your due diligence. And then oftentimes what, what you end up finding is there are already designated pullouts that people are using. Because again, if you compare East coast to West coast, there's a lot more deciduous trees. There's the forests are a lot thicker in the uh-huh. East versus the West. And so it's not like, it's not like the West where you can just kind of crawl around with your truck and find places. You, you really, you're really going to be using pullouts that people have already been using through the years. And so you look for those areas as you're driving up and down these, these roads, the other, the, the backup strategy that I use is I will actually, I'll, I'll see that a trailhead is way, way up on that mountain road. And so if all else fails, I'll end up camping at that trailhead um, in the parking lot. Okay. 
so that, oh, I, see, I see what you're saying. So I'm interested about apex predators because that's one thing I always consider when I go to new areas. For example, if I go to Utah or New Mexico, I'm more in tune with mountain lions. If I'm in central Colorado and the high elevations, I'm, I'm on the lookout for bears. What do you deal with out there on the Northeast region or on the East Coast? Um, you know, it's, I'm going to confess here. It's, it's just not at the top of my mind when I'm camping. And, and in particular, so let me back up. When I pick up truck camp, that's not a real concern of mine. Okay. And maybe I'm foolish in in that thinking but my thought process is that on the east coast there's there's more traffic to remote areas just by the nature of there being more population and less public lands and so my thought process is that if i'm in an area where my vehicle can get to it's it's not a big concern of mine. That mm-hmm. said, when when I'm actually backpacking in those areas, I, I think that the apex predators are bears, and and I think that they're black bears, and and I do think that you also have you know cougars and mountain lions out there as well. And so, simple common sense practices of hanging your food. Are, are things that, that I do, you know, away from my tent. But again, I, maybe I'm rolling the dice, maybe I'm being foolish, but when I pick up truck camping, it's just not, it's not a high concern of mine given whatever, if it's foolish logic, it's foolish logic. But I, I just don't, I don't see a lot of signs. I don't hear a lot of stories of people in their vehicles when they're close to for- mountain or forest roads getting getting attacked that you know i think that that would make sense as you're saying is that with the amount of people that are around that'll scare those apex predators away because like a black bear is pretty skittish they've got they've got high anxiety they're known for that mm-hmm. and so if there's a bunch of noise around they'll just take off and same with same with mountain lions i mean even though they're stealthy as all get out oops let me turn off my email hang on Although they're although the mountain lions are stealthy as all get out, the only time I've seen a mountain lion was at a top of a a pass, and it was a remote mountain pass that not a lot of people go on. And I, I know they're around, like in the four mile area where I camp at in Colorado. It's rumored they're around. I've never seen one in there. I've seen traces of them. I, you know, I'll see like animal bones underneath a tree, or I'll have, I'll see like a carcass pulled up into up into a tree, like hanging on a tree branch, and that's definitely indicative of a mountain lion. But I've never seen them, so I think that you're, you know, you're spot on with saying that there's more people around. The likelihood of those apex predators coming to camp aren't nearly as high as if you were out in a remote section of somewhere. Now, do you do you know if there's wolves out there? Because we, we don't have that in Colorado, but I know there are in other areas of the country. You know, I, I, I again, I, I'm showing, I'm, I'm showing, I guess, my ignorance and and perhaps my foolishness, but I, I can't even answer whether or not there are wolves. I'm, I'm trying to think of the most common areas where I hear packs of wolves. And that, that typically is out, out in the West, at least in my experience. I don't, 
I don't recall ever camping and hearing wolf howls. So again, I guess you're, you're asking good questions, but I, I think I'm, I'm probably revealing more of my foolishness <laughs> than, uh, than good information here. Well, but, but also too, I, I think that there's, there's something to be said for the safety factor of truck camping. You know, you're, you're in a, you're in, a, you're in an enclosed space. As long as you have uh, a back area that's, that's buttoned up, if the tailgates close and the gates down, the window gates down, you have to think that an animal doesn't know how to open that gate to get in there. And the likelihood of them coming and crashing through it is not very high. And so there's a, a great safety factor with that. And, and that's where I think that on the, you know, I see more and more females getting into truck camping because it, it is safe. Like you can go out there solo and, you, and it's not like you're exposed in a tent, like, you know, if you're backpacking or whatever it may be. So there's definitely a safety factor involved with truck camping, which I, which I think is great. And also too, you're protected from the elements a heck of a lot better. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and, you know, my style of, of pickup truck camping and, 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 and even camping in general, I, I really am, I, I'm of the mindset of, of travel light, make it as, as easy as possible to set up camp and break down camp. And so what that looks like for me is if I'm setting up camp for a night, if, I, if, if I'm going to be in and out of a site, I'm not going to take out my table. I'm not going to take out my canopy and set all that up. What, mm-hmm. what I'm going to do is I'll use my tailgate to do all my cooking and my food prep and my chilling and what have you. But I, I keep it really, really simple. And, you know, again, set up and break down on that level is my most simple approach when, when I'm actually camping, where I'll just you know, I'll pop up the, the rear window, I'll break down my, my tailgate, I'll pull out my gear to do cooking and whatnot, but then everything is already packed up. And essentially, if I want to roll first thing in the morning, I'm ready to roll. And, you know, when, when I am going to hang out for a couple of days, I still keep it really minimal. Like I have, I have my one table, um, I have my, my, my cooking gear that I'll pull out in one big Tupperware. And then I have my big canopy tent, but that thing is, you've worked with me on that. You know, you just, you, you, you pull that thing out and you spread it out and then you pop it up and it's, you know, it's less than 10 minutes to get that thing set up. And that's my personal preference. I don't like to carry a lot of stuff. I don't like to set up a lot of stuff. I don't like to have to break down and, and I'm, whether that's lazy or minimalist, you know, I'll leave that to the audience to, to judge, but that's my approach. And I think that that's when, that's one of the reasons why I don't really, I don't think about is a predator going to come and mess with me during the night is a, you know, is a, a another camper or a hoodlum, going to come in and mess with my, my site at night. I don't, I don't really think about that because there's really not that much that can be messed with. And to your point of the advantage of pickup truck camping. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally self-contained in my hard top, my fiberglass hopper. 
it's all locked up. No one, no one can mess with me. And I guess what it really does is it removes my concern. I don't have to think about those things, you know, as, as I, as someone that keeps his gear down to a minimum and keeps his foot down to a min, a footprint down to a minimum. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, when I, when I first started truck camp and I carried a ton of gear with me and now as I get more and more into it and the years pass, I keep on paring down everything because I want to make it easy and I want to, I want to get up and go in the morning. I want to have a real simple breakdown to where it's just a few items that I put in the back of my truck. I push the slide out extension into the topper, close my tailgate and I'm gone. And that's, that's where I think the, you know, you'll see the weekend warrior crowd. And, and I used to be in that, that category for sure. And they'll come out with all the gear and set up. Cause there's a lot of fun in that. I think there's fun. Sure. In up and go, you know, I've got this killer, I've got this killer new cook area and I want to set this up and I've got this, this killer, uh, privacy shower thing where I can go in there and I can take a shower and it's a little tent for that. But then as you're out there more and more, you realize you're like, I don't want to spend all my time setting up and breaking down. And even 10 or 15 minutes of setup or breakdown in the morning becomes cumbersome if you're doing it every single day. And so I think the, the, the advantages of truck camping, like you were saying, you know, you, you can, or like we, we were saying is that you've got the safety, you're, you're self-contained. Uh, we've got, you know, the protection from the elements, and then the convenience of it is just incredible. So, yeah, and, I, and and to translate this to the the specific request by, um, I, I forget who asked us to to talk about the East Coast stuff. So, you know, it it, it translates very well into Northeast in general, East Coast pickup truck camping because, to be honest with you, there's a lot more gray area as to whether I am allowed to be camping where I end up camping. And mm. I do my best to follow the rules just because I, I think that the rules are often in place there to preserve the area. But that said, I, I know that, that there are state and local rules that I'm not always aware of and I just, I don't want to be bothered by a cop. I don't want to be bothered by a ranger. And so I do my best. I do my best to find a legal spot. But then if I'm in a gray area, my strategy is to, it's almost like stealth camping. And I, I just, I try to make my presence as small as possible to minimize someone messing with me at night. And so oftentimes on the East Coast and in the Northeast, what I'll end up doing is I'll, I'll, I'll find a forest road that it's, it's running parallel to a, a river or a creek, knowing mm-hmm. that fishing is very, very popular. You, you know that better than I do. And so my, my thought process is, Okay, if I travel up far enough on this forest road that is following a what could be a good fishing river, maybe it's not legal to be camping here, but there's no doubt that there's going to be little pull-offs and whatnot that anglers are using during the day, and I can just park there. And if I'm, you know, if I have a discrete profile, 
no one's going to mess with me. And maybe they're thinking that I'm doing either late night fishing or early morning fishing. But if you compare that to someone that's got like, you know, all this gear pulled out, they're, they're going to get bothered by, you know, either a local police officer that's scouting out that area or a ranger or what have you. So that my, my style of pickup truck camping, keeping things really, really discreet is really you, you, that that's something that I learned by doing a lot of camping um, on the East Coast and in the Northeast in particular. Well, that's one thing I will say is your setup is very self-contained and you can get in there and it just looks like a truck parked. It doesn't look like anything else. You know, you don't have a bunch of gear on top. You're super low profile. And that's what I think lended to your success of winter camping or, or stealth camping in Wrigleyville during the World Series a couple of years ago. So no, no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah. So I, I it's so getting back to, you know, my my strategies out there again, I, I do my homework. I look at I, I, I want a good map that clearly shows where the national forest is and what the forest roads are. Another piece of homework that I do, I, I do look at the freecampsites.net. That usually gives me a good idea of what roads are far enough away from civilization where I'll find those little pullouts. But then I'm also looking for rivers that have parallel forest roads. And in particular, you know, the Adirondacks that's a state park. It's not a national forest. It's governed by state laws as opposed to you don't. So you and I both know that when it comes to national forests and public lands in general, that one can camp there legally as long as you're not blocking the road. And, you know, if you see signs, obviously those those need to be followed. But generally speaking, you can assume that it's legal to camp anywhere within a national forest or public lands, as long as you're not being a dick. That's not the case in the Adirondacks. That's not the case in the Berkshires. That's not the case in the Poconos. Those are all state-managed state parks that are much more tight on random camping. And so again, my setup where it's, it's discreet and it could be a question if, if a, if a cop or any other kind of state ranger is driving by my vehicle, my mindset is I, I want them to think that, okay, maybe he's late night fishing or he's early morning fishing. Like gotcha. he's probably not camping. That's that's my strategy when I'm, you know, rolling around the Northeast and, um, and even into the Appalachians. Okay. So a question about the state park areas then in Colorado, if I wanted to go camp in a state park, I always have to pay for, for campsites. If someone was wanting to go and, and say they're not from the New England area or the East coast area, but they said, Hey, I don't mind paying for a campsite out there. You know, I'll go and reserve one. Generally speaking, what does a campsite fee cost for just a normal, a normal campsite? Yeah, you're you're probably looking at something around between twenty and thirty dollars a night. 
um, for, yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, if you go to Rocky mountain national park, um, in the, in the peak season, that's what you're going to pay for a tent site. And that's the same deal. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, is because you've got such high population out on, out in the East and then in the Northeast in particular, those campsites are often, um, they, at least on the weekends and, and in the high season, you're, you don't want to show up there in the late afternoon because chances are all those spots are going to be taken. Yeah, I can definitely see that. There's some places in Colorado that I know of that don't get hit with much traffic at all in national forests where there's campgrounds. I've seen a campground as low as $7 a night and then as high as 39. So yeah. it just depends, depends on where you go. Yeah. And so, state and state parks, oftentimes they've got great facilities. Um, oh, and when, yeah. yeah. So, you know, they'll, they'll be on lakes and they'll have shower houses and, you know, they might even have like playgrounds and stuff on them. So they're, they're beautiful sites, but you end up paying a lot of money for them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, shifting gears to, to bugs and insects, you know, in Colorado, we've pretty much got, at least the areas where I go, it's pretty much just mosquitoes and then biting black fly, flies in the summertime. And then obviously in the, the fall and winter, there's, there's not much hardly at all. As soon as the temperatures start to dip down pretty good at night, the mosquitoes go away because they're not very hardy and the black flies are gone. They, they die out as well. But on the East Coast, I would imagine that just with the way some of the areas are in the southern areas like Virginia, stuff like that, in the summertime, I would imagine there's a, a bit more diversity with the bugs. And then up in the New England area, I would think that that mirrors a little bit more closer to Colorado, but I, I could be wrong. What, what, what have you experienced and what do you recommend as far as mosquito nets or bugging protection or, or anything like that? What, what do you do to combat that? Yeah, it, it's a huge issue and something to consider. So, obviously, the further north you go in your camping and the further, the higher an elevation, that brings the temperature down. And so you have less bugs. That said, the humidity is much higher on the East Coast than it is in the West. And humidity, moisture allows more breeding for bugs. And when I say bugs, really what we're talking about is mosquitoes and black flies. And it can be horrible, absolutely miserable and horrible when one is camping and you don't scout out, okay, are the temperatures going to be falling low enough at night where they're not going to bother me? So that that's one thing that I'm always looking for when I'm doing camping on the in the east and and the northeast in particular. Are the temperatures going to get low enough so that bugs aren't going to be bothering me at night? And the I I have not actually used it. So my my go-to bug repellent is is nature's bug repellent, and that means cold. So that's what I use. But I have heard a number of people who've had a lot of success. I, I think that there there are I can't remember. I think it's called a thermocell. Yeah, um, I've seen on my website. Those are awesome. I, and I've heard people talk about they 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 swear by them religiously. 
And, mm-hmm. and it's actually on my list to just have it if, if it's an ever, ever an issue for me. But that's what I, I would be. I'd have that thing. I, I don't know whether there are noxious fumes that come off of that. And so I, I'm not sure whether I'd actually want that thing in my, my, uh, my topper with me as I sleep. I maybe, maybe it's something that I put right outside the topper, but I've heard a lot of people swear by those things that they essentially create a 10 foot radius around you of, you know, keeping the the bugs at bay. Yeah. It's actually a 15 foot radius. Is now, it? Okay. Used, yeah. I've used them backpacking cause you can get, you can get a number of different ones. You can get a backpacking one, which just sits on top of like a just those little fuel canisters that you use for backpacking. It just screws right into the top there, and then you light it, and then it actually creates like a vapor that comes out of it. And it's it's amazing. I mean, you can be the, you can be sitting right next to it, no bugs whatsoever. You go outside of that fifteen foot barrier, and you're getting eaten alive. Yeah, I and I've I've heard that from so many different people, um, and so it's it's been on my list for a long time. You know, I- interesting. So if you're so it's a huge issue. So I, I've been I've been in the Northeast where the temperatures have not gotten down low enough, and mosquitoes get into my topper, and it's it's a miserable experience. And I've also I, I've been down in the Florida Everglades, and I, I've never had a more miserable night of my life than than they they will find a way into your topper. I. I mean, I, I feel like I, I was stuffing socks and everything into every single seam that I possibly could to try to keep those things out. And I think they just find a way to to get in there. So that I, I would strongly recommend the what, what what's the the little gizmo that that you you light and gives off the the vapor. It's called a thermo cell. A thermo cell. Okay. Yeah. The other issue, though, to be that one needs to be really, really aware of when you're camping on the east and in the northeast, in particular, is fleas and ticks. It, it it's it it can be a nightmare for your pet, and then if they get ticks on them and they're sleeping in a topper with you, I've had it where I've woken up and I you know push aside my sleeping bag and I see three ticks on my bedding and I'm like, holy crap. And I start freaking out, you know, and start looking all around my own body. So whenever you're getting into your, your topper while camping and you've got your dog with you, you not only do you want to check your dog, but you want to check yourself um, to make sure that you're, you don't have any ticks on you. And then the fleas, the same deal. So when I'm out on the East coast, I regularly administer my dog the the oral. I think it's called Advantage or Frontline. It, it's an oral version of flea and tick. So essentially, it doesn't allow if if a flea or a tick bites your dog, it dies like very very rapidly. And so that's that's a huge thing for anybody that has their dog and is doing camping out there on the East coast and the Northeast in particular. Another thing I want to mention about ticks, Sierra got bit with two ticks this past year and she was sick for about a week and I had to really keep an eye on her. She just had a kind of a loss of appetite. I think the tick kind of made her a little bit sick. And one thing to always note is that if you're removing 
a tick from an animal or yourself is that make sure that you get that the, there's two little, it's almost like it looks like antennas that come out of the tick and they, those, those antennas burrow into the skin pretty far. And you always want to make sure that if the head of the tick comes out, that's good, but get those two little spines that, that, that go into the skin as well. If you don't get those out, you'll get an infection. Yeah, I, I have one of those. Um, I think it's called a tick key. So it 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 uh, it slides over the tick, and it, it there's this like fork at the end of it to help you get get the full head of the tick out. Because um, yeah, that that's a big big issue. Yeah, and that's how a lot of people get Lyme disease and yeah. other other diseases from ticks. If you don't get those, those two little pokers out or whatever they are, I don't know what the, I don't know what the technical term is or the medical term, but if you don't get those out, that's where a lot of those diseases and things reside. And another thing too, is you don't want to burn the tick because the tick can throw up and it'll throw up through those two little antennas and that will go into your skin or into your dog and make them very sick as well. So, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, is there anything else that, that you can think of that you want to cover for camping on the East coast or in the new England area that we didn't address? Cause I, I think we hit the kind of the key topics here. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I would just, um, I would encourage people to actually visit the ranger office. So, you know, when you, whenever you're pulling into a national forest, more often than not, there is a, a ranger station. Um, and, you can go in there and get great maps of all of the forest roads and even having conversations with the rangers and, and asking them about dispersed sites and the rules, the local rules. Um, that would be one other big suggestion that I have. And um, so that's for the national forests. And then on the state park level, you know, a lot of my a, a lot of the sites that I choose and the areas that I choose, they actually come from conversations with locals. And I'm, I'm someone that knows people. I've got friends in low places <laughs> and, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them and get that local recon. And I, I do have my favorite areas in the Adirondacks and the Poconos and the Berkshires, but I don't personally, my philosophy is I'm not going to share specific, I'm not going to publicly share my gems just because I don't, I don't think that that's a fair thing to the area, to be honest with you, because if it's overrun, but go and, and talk to locals, go to your local ranger stations get maps and use, have fun with it. And, and if you see a river with a, a forest road that runs along, along it, go scout it out, go, go follow it as long as you can. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the risk and reward approach to pickup truck camping where, you know, you might actually find that gem just on your, your own recon if you follow those forest roads that run parallel to rivers. Well, that's, that's great information, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And that, that'll help me when I head out there. I'll probably go out, not this summer, but next summer to go visit my brother. I've got a lot of stuff going on this summer in Lake City, but next summer after the cabin's built and all that stuff, I'll probably head out. I may go in the fall because the, the fall time in Tennessee and also through Missouri 
traveling to Tennessee, I, I go through the southern part of Missouri, and it's so beautiful down there with the leaves changing in the latter part of October and first part of November. So if I head out there, I'll definitely keep all this stuff in mind, and that way I can have an enjoyable experience and not uh, not be a fish out of water too much. <laughs> Yeah, and one one last little tip that I'll I'll give the audience and yourself. I I always have a backup trailhead that I'll ha- I'll have identified it on a map. So, if I'm scouting around and I'm not finding anything on forest roads or what have you, what I'll end up doing to camp for the night is I'll go stealth camp in a at a trailhead parking lot. And you know, more often than not, you know, my, my logic on it is that number one, maybe, you know, if a, if a, if a cop, a local cop comes in or a ranger, if I don't have any signs of a campsite set up, you know, if I'm not setting up a tent and I don't have gear strewn around my vehicle, they're going to just think that I've, I've hiked in and I'm camping in there. When Uh, in reality, I'm actually sleeping in the back of my truck. And then, you know, in the morning when I wake up as hikers come up, you know, and I've got my tailgate out and I'm cooking coffee, I can just say, oh, I just got here, but I'm making myself a cup of coffee, you know, before I head out uh, camping. So that's, that's kind of always my backup is to have a trailhead that I know I can go to and park there and just do total stealth camping there. That is a great idea. Well, cool, man. I, I, I think that, that Ken Arbuckle, the guy who, who uh, had emailed us from Syracuse, I think he'll really find this information useful. So I uh, want to thank, thank Ken for sending us some ideas for this podcast. And, and Craig, thanks for sharing your experience on this, man. It's going to help me out a bunch when I go out East. Right on. Yeah. And if people have, you know, additional questions or clarifications that they want from this conversation, please throw those up either on either your or my website or, you know, on the Facebook group that we created for this podcast. I'll be, I'll be happy to answer any other questions or what have you, or we can, you know, start to exchange personal messages, you know, with respect to individual sites and how to check out certain areas. But again, I, I just don't like sharing that stuff publicly. Yeah, no, I'm with you, man. No, no reason to spoil the the areas that took us a long time to figure out. No doubt. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, what do you say we log off here? And uh, I'm going to do, do a few things around here and get my truck all squared away and then possibly hit the road either tomorrow or, or, or Friday. Sounds great. Looking forward to getting you out here and uh, having you having you sit bitch on my, uh, my snowmobile. <laughs> Take me to the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. All right. right, I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Later.